Welcome to Sports History 101. Hello, everybody. Hello, sports fans. Hopefully you're a sports fan. If you're not, then I'm not really sure why you're listening to this podcast. But also, if you're not, maybe I can convince you. This is Sports History 101, and I am Ray Delgado. Thanks for listening to the podcast. And for those who were waiting for an episode last week that never came, I apologize. I did not record because I was under the weather. Unfortunately, wasn't feeling good, just didn't have it. That being said, hopefully this week brings you right back into sports history like you never left and gives you some appreciation for one of the greatest moments in USA men's hockey history that is largely forgotten. So a little bit of backstory here. Leading up to the Winter Olympics in Squaw Valley, California, the that would be in 1960, the best amateur hockey team in the United States were the Brockton Wetzels. They were invited to play five games against the Soviets. So, you know, back then you weren't professionals if you played in the Olympics, so best amateur team in the U.S. You know, that's a relatively normal thing. Going to go play against Soviets, see how how they are at hockey or how we stack up because we already knew how they were at hockey. Well, they lost all games just by a landslide. wasn't even close. They gave up 62 goals and only scored seven themselves. So as a country, this was a huge wake-up call. I mean, we're right in the middle of the Cold War. So tensions are already high with the USSR and we obviously want to beat them in everything that we possibly can. So being embarrassed by the Soviets was really not an option in any real competition because those were just basically exhibition games. But if they could beat us that way in real competition, that'd be really bad. So the U.S. held preliminary tryouts in 1959 for the USA men's hockey team. Jack Riley was the head coach. He was the head coach at Army and was one of the best around. He was voted, I think, the few years prior, he was voted the uh, the best college coach in the whole country. And he held tryouts at the University of Minnesota. He invited 25 players and eventually finalized that roster, whittled it down to 17 players, none of which were pros. There were no sponsors available. There were no subsidies. There was no anything. All players took unpaid leaves from jobs as firemen, jobs as carpenters in the military, in insurance, advertising, all kinds of different stuff, to work for $7 a week to be on the team, which is a fraction of what they were getting at the time. And essentially, they just did it for the love of the game. I mean, you don't do it for for the paycheck at that point because that's nothing. That's literally like a you know, covering some food maybe while you're with the team and and nothing else. So they did it because they, they loved playing hockey. And they were good. I mean, there were some really great amateur players. I mean, there were Roger and Bill Christian, who were brothers from Minnesota, who were very good. Uh, John Mayasich, who actually had to finish up the season with the Green Bay Bobcats before he got to join the U.S. team, but he was really good. And they had some other great players, too. The team started playing exhibition games, like right after the the roster was finalized, uh, up going up to the Olympics, so they could you know get their feet under them and figure out what was going going on. And 
they did not go well. They won, but they also lost basically at the same clip. Just really lukewarm results, and they were not sitting well with Coach Riley. So during that time, while they were playing these exhibition games, really when he actually set up the tryouts essentially for for the whole team itself, Coach Riley really wanted a guy named Bill Cleary to join the team. Cleary was a part of the 1956 silver medal winning team and was a really great player, but he was getting married and really couldn't afford to not work for what would be, you know, a number of months or at least a number of weeks. But Riley kept calling. He wasn't someone who was just going to give up because someone gave him a no. And Cleary just kept saying no. But then finally, Cleary relented and said that if he was going to be on the team, then they'd also have to take his brother Bob as well. Now, that might sound like some uh, nepotism. Well, I guess, yeah, nepotism. Because, you know, one of his players or his brother was a really bad player and everything. But in this instance, it wasn't, uh, wasn't that far of a stretch to add his brother on. His brother was on the 1959 team that competed in the world championships for the U.S. So he was, you know, a good player, good hockey player. And Bill is like, yeah, if you want me to come, my brother's got to come too. So just a few weeks before the Olympics, literally, like I think it was two and a half weeks or something, two brand new players just walk up and meet the players. And uh, that obviously meant that other players had to go. They only have a certain amount of roster spots. And if you add two new players, that means two new players have to leave. It was a very, quote, cool reception by the team when they got to Denver and actually met everybody for the first time. The coach, Riley, talked about it later. He said, quote, we wanted to win and we wouldn't have won if we didn't do what we did. Meaning, I'm not sorry about it. I wanted the better guys and I got the better guys. And that was it. So for the 1960 Olympic tournament, so again, that was in Squaw Valley, California, which is a small, small town in Northern California. There were nine teams and they were very clearly four favorites. There were Canada, the USSR, Czechoslovakia, and Sweden. All great teams, all had been at the top in either Olympic competition or the world championship competition for the last number of years and really all in all the USA was never supposed to medal they were never supposed to really do anything I mean one magazine even predicted that the US would finish last out of nine groups and that nine teams sorry last out of nine teams and that those nine included the country of Australia which they're not even yeah that doesn't make any sense at all and somehow we were supposed to finish behind them we were that underrated were that uh, bad in some people's eyes? Who knows? So the field was split into three different groups of three teams with the top two teams from each group advancing. So the U.S. opened their games on February 19th against Czechoslovakia. And Mejicic had three goals and one assist. The U.S. scored four goals in the third period and ended up winning 7-5. to five. So... If you uh, remember, rewind for just a second. 
Czechoslovakia was supposed to be one of the favorites in the field. Granted, they were favored behind Canada and the USSR, but regardless. So the U.S. beating them 7-5, to five, like that's just big by, by itself, just at face value. The next game was versus Australia. I mean, this one wasn't even fair. There were six goals by the U.S. in the first period, and then six more in the other two periods combined. But Australia did get did score once. They got a goal on the board. But it was a 12-1 to win for Australia. Their other loss... No. Excuse me. 12-1 to win for the U.S. over Australia. And in Australia's other game that they played, they only got to play two because they were that bad. They lost something like 19-0. to So... That was the first time that Australia fielded a team in the Olympics, and it was also the last time, and there's probably good reason for that. So two wins advanced the U.S. to the elimination round, or the final round, and the other teams from Group A was Canada and Sweden, and then Group B was the USSR and Germany. All Again, all the favorites still around. And the other team out of the U.S. group was Czechoslovakia. So the field is set, and I will tell you more about it after a quick break. So in the opening game of the final round, the U.S. matched up versus Sweden. Roger Christian scored the first of four goals in the first period, which, well, which should made you think maybe it's just a landslide victory, but Sweden pulled back with two goals in the second, but then really didn't do much past them. The U.S. scored two more times and ended up with a 6-3 to three win. And that was one down, moving on. In the next game, Bill and Bob Cleary, they opened the scoring versus Germany. It actually would have been West Germany at this point. And Bill would have three more goals and one assist in a 9-1 to victory. McCartan, the goalie, had 25 saves, and the U.S. had four power play goals. I'm not sure if they called them power play back then or not, but they had four, I guess you could say Germany allowed four shorthanded goals, which is how it looked like they called it in the box score. But regardless, huge 9-1 decisive victory. Germany never had a chance here, and check two, moving on again. Up next was a really big one. It was one that uh, the U.S. was not expected to win because it was Canada. Canada was thought to be so much better. Some thought by a margin of four goals better. It didn't matter that the U.S. had already really won in like in style in their first four games or three games. It uh, it was really amazing at how much they were being undervalued, underrated. But that's just because Canada was so good. They had won gold medal in six of the last eight Olympics. All of that's eight Olympics. That was since the hockey started in the Olympics. Canada had won the gold medal six of eight times. Huge odds, but the U.S. was undeterred. The Americans struck first on a goal from Cleary and an assist from Mayasich at 12 minutes and 47 seconds into the first period. 
Johnson then doubled the lead at 14 minutes in the second period. And, you know, that's kind of crazy. Just, just right there through basically almost two full periods, the U S was up two zero on Canada, but then the Canada offense ratcheted up. I mean, McCartan tallied 20 saves in that period and then or 20 saves for the rest of the game. And, Canada finally then scored with seven minutes left to play on a goal from James Connolly, which cut the lead down to two to one. Very uncomfortable situation, I would imagine. However, McCartan would stand on his head and wouldn't let another goal through. He had 39 saves total for the game, and the U.S. pulled off the upset. Huge, you know, it's like the little brother beating the bigger brother, David beating Goliath, whatever you know, you want to call it, whatever you want to use, big deal. It was completely unexpected. And Canada, likely that meant that there's no chance they're getting the gold, which that that by itself was also crazy. Up next in, I guess this would be called the semifinals, was the USSR. So again, like I mentioned earlier, It's right during the Cold War. It's a big deal. This is public enemy number one in the United States. And Soviet Union was also the best hockey team or one of the two best hockey teams in the world and were far and away supposed to be better than the the USA team. The game was also a really rare national telecast. It was broadcast across the country, obviously national, and pulled over 20 million viewers just in the U.S. I'm not sure how they televised things or how it went internationally, but in just the U.S. alone, it was over 20 million people watched the game. And then at the arena itself, it was a packed house of over 10,000 fans, which had to have been just an amazing feeling, amazing atmosphere, amazing everything. One of the Clearies scored first again, but the lead would not last. Just within five minutes of the U.S.'s first score, the Soviets scored twice. So showing their might, showing their skill early on to go up 2-1. Then after that, it was, I mean, pretty good offense, defense, really great play, and no one scored for 20 more minutes. It was pretty evenly matched. But the U.S. would then break through in the second period. Uh, William Christian scored on an assist from Robert Christian brothers, and they nodded things up at two. Brand new ball game, basically. And from that point forward, I mean, through the third period, the U.S. defense really stood up. I mean, they let just five shots get to goal, and McCartan stopped all of them. And on the flip side, the offense kept up pressure and had 13 shots on goal, forcing the goalie to, to save 13 shots. And at 14.59 into the period, William Christian scored his second of the game. He found the back of the net and took a 3-2 lead over the Soviets, over the USSR, over, you know, I don't even know what we call him. I, again, I was called public enemy number one. Like, that was that was the bad guy right there. And as the clock ticked down, I mean, the Soviets made last gasp efforts, but the U.S. won. They won 3-2. It was just huge, huge victory. Had to have been an amazing feeling being in that building, being on that team, all of that stuff. 
And that also meant that the United States team, the Americans, had taken down two giants in the sport of hockey. They took down Canada first, the USSR second. I mean, one of the players says it feels like we've just won the war. Like it was it was that big and that that unbelievable, I guess you could also say. Unbelievable in terms of what everyone's expectations were around the team. But the team was confident and the team knew that they they had a chance if they played to their expectations and to their abilities, and they did. And they ended up winning, which put them into the gold medal game. So it was the last game, and it was first Czechoslovakia. So this wasn't a knockout type of tournament. It's more so a, a round-robin type where every every team would play five games. And, you know, whoever had the best record at the win, you get two points for a victory, one point for a tie, nothing for a, for a win. So this last game was the USA versus the Czechs, which was completely unexpected. This was supposed to kind of just be a more of a throwaway game if who for whoever really got there. And that's also why it was at eight o'clock in the morning. The game that was supposed to be the big deal, that was supposed to be, you know, the gold medal game was Canada versus the Soviet Union, which is why that game was scheduled for more or less prime time on the final day of the tournament. But those teams were, weren't going for gold. They were going for something else. They were going for other medals, but not the one that everybody wanted. So on February 28th, which doing the math correctly, at the time of this podcast publishing, that was 62 years ago, two days ago. So February 28th, 1960, it was another national telecast, another huge game. The Americans had beat the Czechs earlier in the tournament. I mean, they had beat them. I talked about it earlier. Forget exactly what the uh, score was here. Let me do my due diligence back here. Seven to five, 75 victory over Czechoslovakia early in the tournament. Uh, but, I mean, that was largely one that was, you know, a week before or something like that. And it also would be much harder this time because the U.S. team literally had less than 24 hours to recover from their previous game. So they had just played the Soviets, excuse me, just played the Soviets the night before. And then they have to play the Czechs literally 8 o'clock in the morning the next day. So they had less than 24 hours to recover. That, I guess, fatigue showed really early in the game because Czechoslovakia scored eight seconds in. And, I mean, it wasn't all dire past then. It wasn't like we were going down to the wire of, you know, losing because we were so tired. I mean, I say we, I mean the U.S. They, the team would then score twice, so they go up 2-1. And then they traded a couple more goals to get to tied at three to three after one period. In the second period, it was nothing like the first. There were six goals in the first period and only one in the second period. And that was for the checks, which meant that the Americans were down 
four to three with just 20 minutes left to play. Granted, long time to play, but still completely unexpected. So during that second intermission, a really odd thing happened. The Soviet captain, Nikolai Sologubov, I believe is how you say that. I'm not entirely sure. Came into the U.S. locker room. And he didn't speak any English, but he basically mimed to the players like with an like an oxygen mask, like told players to like take oxygen to basically like re-energize them because he could you, you could see how how tired they were. They played the game before and everything or the day before. And it was just a really odd thing. I mean, you know, the basically your largest rival coming in and encouraging you like, come on, you can do it. It was odd then and is odd now, but really what the pur- purpose of it was is the Soviets did not want Czechoslovakia to meddle. That was one of the countries that they were not a fan of. Um, and I think it might have been under their control at one point. I don't know that for certain, but they just really did not want that that country to meddle at all. So they were pulling for and quote unquote rooting for and encouraging the U.S. team. But it was it was for, you know, your own selfish gain, basically. Not really sure how it happened or what happened, but something ended up clicking after that that intermission. I mean, six minutes into the period, Robert Christian scored, and he started the party. Bob Cleary scored twice. Robert Christian scored again. Bob Cleary scored again. Robert Christian scored for a third time. And the Czech goalie had to make 45 saves for the whole game. 22 of them came in the last period. And he still let in nine goals total. So the USA would win nine to four to clinch that gold medal, the first medal in USA history, the first gold medal. Unbelievable. Amazing. But I mean, the celebration wouldn't last for long because they got lives to get back to. So after the win, a little later that day was the medal ceremony. I mean, after the Soviet and Canadian game. It was a medal ceremony. And Jack Corain was the only player who was over 30 on the U.S. team. He stood on the podium to receive the medal at that point. I guess only one player would go to the medal ceremony. So he was the one who got to go. And all the other players had their medals placed on their beds in their uh, living quarters. And um, they were gold medalists. I mean, then Canada got silver. So Canada ended up beating the Soviets for silver and this the USSR got bronze and after the US players got their medals literally all 17 of them flew home immediately to get back to their jobs and they had to go back and make money to support themselves and their families because they had largely done had gotten nothing from competing in the Olympics and achieving this unbelievable mark that no one ever expected them to do and unfortunately no one really remembers that they did either as far as the players in that team, only one of the players named Tommy Williams would go on to make a living as a professional. So John Mayasich, who's a great player on the team, scored a bunch of goals. He would coach in amateur leagues and was actually the only, still to this day, is the only Minnesota graduate to have his number retired for hockey, which is pretty cool. Bill Cleary is the only Harvard player to have his number retired. And he coached 
the Harvard hockey team and is the only one to ever win a national title. So that's pretty cool. Dick Meredith, another guy, worked for the Minnesota North Stars, which were an NHL team back in the day. Uh, Weldy Olson uh, designed ice rinks. Jack McCartan, he scouted for the Canucks, Vancouver Canucks, and actually played a few games in golf with New York Rangers. And then Bill and Roger Christian created a hockey stick company. So really most of the guys stayed around hockey and stayed in hockey because that's what they loved and that's what they knew. But none of them made it big except for, well, none of them really had a sustained professional career except for Tommy Williams. And I can't even say he was a really famous or really big, uh, important player, which is kind of crazy. I mean, these guys defeated the best teams in the world against all odds. And, you know, none of them ended up having any sustained success as professionals. The 1960 USA men's hockey team were the first to compete, complete the feat, but their gold medal performance is largely a forgotten miracle. The 1980 team is called the Miracle on Ice and gets all the fanfare and historical memory, but the guys in 1960 were nothing short of amazing, taking down unbelievable teams over and over to finish a perfect, I believe it was 9-0, in, in the tournament to stand at the top of the step of the podium and be gold medalists and go down in history. Absolutely incredible. And something that should be celebrated in Olympic history forever, regardless of who's done it before, who hasn't done it before. That's a story that should be in the annals of history for a very long time. Well, that is all that there is, at least all that I have on the USA men's hockey team in 1960 at the Winter Olympics. Gold medalists, best in the land. Everything you could, every accolade you could put on them. Amazing stuff. So thank you as always for taking some time to listen to the podcast. And until next time, stay safe and remember that Jesus loves you. Mm-hmm.